Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Hello and welcome. This is John Morgan with the Just Science Podcast, a production of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence and RTI International. Today, we're going to have two of the world's leaders in forensic statistics, a couple of people who've been working in this area since before it was cool. We have Tasha Hex and Christophe Champaud. Welcome, Tasha and Christophe. Thank you. Thank you. And also joining us today is uh, Heidi Eldridge of RTI, and Heidi is actually a grad student at the University of Lausanne under Christophe. So uh, Heidi, glad to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. I originally met Christophe back in 2002 when he was still working for the old Forensic Sciences Services in the United Kingdom, and we've known each other ever since. At the time, I was the new deputy director at NIJ over the Office of Science and Technology and I had an interest in forensic statistics in trying to determine whether we could help forensic science quantitate its results in the pattern evidence disciplines and elsewise. Uh, so Christoph and I were cool. We were cool about wanting to do forensic statistics long before it became of interest more broadly in the forensic science community. We'll be looking at current approaches used today in determining subjective probability as we dive into the world of statistics and forensic science. I don't know, Tasha, whether you and I have met in person, but I guess both of you were at the FSS in the United Kingdom. Yes, that's correct. Well, Christoph worked uh, a few years longer than I did. So tell me about the experience there. Were you all interested in statistical interpretation at the time or what got you to move back over to Switzerland? I remember talking to Christoph at the time and he said he liked being in the United Kingdom because there was a lot more crime there than in, in Switzerland. Were you both bench scientists at the time or what were you doing? I was working in the R&D department in the physical science where I was doing some fibers and glass examination, helping the caseworkers in the FSS in particular with regard to how they should assess their results and how uh, we could help them uh, doing that. It was really an honor to be able to work with uh, such dedicated scientists. I joined the FSS when uh, my contract at the University of Lausanne came to an end, and I was facing the prospect of joining a private company to do forensic accounting or joining the FSS, who offered me the possibility to develop interpretation research and to lead the interpretation research group. So it was not very long for us, Tasha and I, to decide that we will move to England, and it has been a, a wonderful time, not only because of the crime level, I must say, but certainly because of the booming of forensic science at the time, the turn of the 2000. Uh, it was the big growth of the national DNA database. Interpretation issues were all over the place, and it was a fantastic opportunity to join a growing organization with a lot of reporting officers to train, and I was in charge of delivering the training packages on interpretation to prepare the young scientists joining the FSS to become reporting officers and go to court. So it was a very exciting time to join the FSS. We certainly both feel privileged to have, uh, to have the opportunity to be part of this adventure for a few years. 
Christoph and Tasha, do you feel like your time at the FSS did a lot to help shape sort of the way you see these issues, or do you think that you already had those ideas pretty well formulated when you got there? Because it seems like you both still have a, a pretty close relationship with many people in the UK with your writings like that. I think both because of, for example, well, I think it was when Christoph had his, received his diploma in forensic science, he, he came to give a conference. That shaped a lot more thinking, and he was also, for me, involved in my PhD uh, thesis committee. I think he, all his writings and all the literature that I read from him shaped a lot my thinking, as well as others, of course. But being with his colleagues and having you know, everyday conversations on that topic with them was very inspiring. For me, of course, interpretation was part of my daily thinking before moving to the UK, but essentially from a theoretical perspective. And the big change was to be immediately involved in operations. So the questions became, I have this case, I need to go back to court tomorrow. What shall I say and how are we going to draft this statement? And although these questions were dealt with before in a more theoretical environment, to be forced to provide solutions, which can be, on one hand, where feasible while maintaining logic and scientific quality, that was a very interesting thing to do. My time in the UK confirmed that I like to do casework alongside with research because forensic science is essentially an applied science and it has to be applied to live. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because here we are years later and we're still struggling with the exact same thing, aren't we? Trying to, to move the theoretical aspects into the practical, what do I say in court, in all of the forensic disciplines, really. Yes, nothing new, and to me, you will see it's a rocky road, and 20 years down the line, it's still very rocky. Yeah, there has been progress, because when you've been in the field maybe just a few years, then you might have the impression that things are not going the way they should be. I think it just takes time for things to change, but they're changing. One concept we'll be discussing is the Bayesian approach. Now, you're going to hear an awful lot over the next few years, if you have not already, about different approaches to the problem of statistical interpretation. Don't worry too much about the jargon, but I do want to talk a little bit about what Bayesian analysis is before we dive in with Christoph, so that you have an idea about how they're approaching this issue. Think about the idea of you're trying to determine what the truth is in a case, and the truth might have several different elements that help to prove it or not prove it. So eyewitness testimony is actually generally less reliable than forensic science. It might be reliable only two out of three times. In some cases, it might be more. In some cases, it might be less. You might have information from the investigation that also allows you a certain probability to say, well, this contributes to the likelihood that we've caught the right person in this case. And then, of course, you have forensic methods as well. And each of those forensic methods have a certain level of confidence associated with them. The Bayesian would look at all these and combine them. So there is what they call the prior probability. So I'm really simplifying this so that we can think about these. Think about the idea, what's the likelihood going in before I've considered the latent print that individual A committed the crime. The latent print will have a certain a statistical probability associated with it as well. And again, I'm simplifying, but let's just say it gives an exclusion of a billion to one against all other individuals in the world that this print came from the suspect. Well, you can multiply the prior probability times that billion 
to get a combined probability, what is called posterior odds. And you could do this for each individual piece of evidence and multiply all those probabilities out to get a final answer about what is and is not likely to have been the case. So Christoph is a classical Bayesian. He looks at these issues very much from that perspective. And if you look at some of the work that's come out of Lausanne in recent years, they actually have taken this well beyond forensic science with the idea of actually informing the court more broadly about what the quantitative likelihood ratios are for things that are in forensic science, but also in investigation. Now, that's rather, in some respects, kind of a bloodless way of looking at criminal investigation and analysis, but it is a very rigorous way, especially for things in forensic science, where we're trying to make a quantitative and objective examination based on physical evidence, as opposed to things that might be more subjective with respect to whether we believe an eyewitness or not. So when we talk through these issues, I hope you keep those ideas in mind with respect to how he explains Bayesian thinking. Part of the problem, I think, is that there's a poor understanding of just the difficulty of applying quantitative metrics in real-world situations, such as forensic science based with. It's not a trivial matter to be able to move these fields in a way that's going to be uh, rigorous and just. You're absolutely right, John. But something which I'd like to stress is that quite often interpretative issues that, that we are currently discussing are summarized with saying it's about applying statistics to the problem and numerical assessment. It starts by being a problem of logic. What I noticed years after years is that the difficulty is not stemming from a calculus or a statistical problem. The difficulties are stemming from the fact that people don't have a robust system to make inference and don't stick to basic rules of logic. And I would say bluntly, that has nothing to do with numbers. It has to do with how we make proper rezoning, to what are the questions we are trying to address, what are the questions that we should not touch and we should not address, what is our role as a forensic scientist, is it our role to testify in court in a given manner, do we have a different role when we go on a crime scene and do a different type of activities. And quite often I notice that it's because the common framework or definition of, of what we do and how we reason uh, in forensic sciences is very ill-defined, that's what makes things difficult, in my view, much more than the issue of whether or not numbers can be assigned to it. And I also think that for me as a forensic scientist, because we both were trained as forensic scientists, so doing cases, and in any discipline, so for example, handwriting, and in that particular area, we know that there are not a lot of data, but on the other hand, it is a discipline that has a long history, and we know that there is a lot of knowledge. And the people who have taken the approach, having just a logical framework in order to have a sound reasoning, and as Christoph said, to ask the good questions so that we would have the good answers, I think that is uh, immensely uh, helpful. But sometimes if you don't know exactly what are the good questions to ask, you might only look at one side of the coin, uh, which you do not if you have a specific framework in mind. So as I see it, the Bayesian approach or the logical framework is a tool that just helps us think about what questions we should ask and what kind of data also we need, but also what kind of data we have already.
So for the benefit of the listeners, would one of you be willing to give a, a brief example of how that might be applied for a discipline that doesn't have much data? I mean, how would they use this logical framework, arrive at a way of describing the findings that is achievable and also understandable? Well, I think I'm going to try, Heidi. I will use a footwear mark example. Now, the reason I'd like to use footwear mark is because I believe it has been very badly treated in the recent PCAP report. And I think footwear mark is an area where, by tradition, numbers have been ignored, or probability statement has been ignored a lot in practice. So I'm going to take a footwear mark case to illustrate what are the type of questions that an appropriate framework will invite the scientists to consider. By tradition, Footwear mark examiners, when they don't conclude to an identification and when they conclude by degree, it is customary to think in terms of whether it's likely, very likely or very probable that the mark has been left by the shoe. And by definition, the question we are addressing here, the scientists will not tell you how likely it is that this mark has been left by this shoe. And if he does, he's committing what we know in the discipline as the error of transposing the conditional. The scientist should only ask questions about his findings, given what we call the proposition, given that the shoe left the mark, or a different shoe, a known, left the mark. But it is not a question to know how likely it is that that shoe left the mark. This is a question for the core. So the proper way of looking at footwear mark evidence is to ask a set of questions, which are as follows. The first, based on the observation that has been made between a mark on the scene and a print from a known shoe, the first question is to ask, what is the probability of making these observations, this set of observations between the two, if truly the mark has been left by that shoe? Now, notice the language. It's the probability of the observation if that mark has been left by that shoe. It's not the probability of whether or not that shoe left that mark. And that first question referred to how reproducible, if truly that shoe left that mark, uh, the marks from that shoe will be in order to present the features that we have at hand. And the second question is to ask yourself, what is the probability of making the observation on the mark if another shoe, unknown, but not the shoe of interest or under investigation, has left that mark? And that's the other side of the equation. Now, when you do the ratio between the answers to both of these questions, you obtain what we call uh, the likelihood ratio. Now, in all this conversation, I haven't used a number yet. I just have highlighted the logical questions that needs to be asked, and it's always in relation to the observation and never in relation to the propositions themselves, whether or not the shoe left that mark. And I think a good starting point to put the logic right is to ask the right question. What are the relevant questions in forensic science? Now, the next one responds to what you asked, Heidi, is how to treat a case like this where we don't have numbers. Orally, I will give you a bit of information about the case. The mark has been left in snow. It's Switzerland. It's, we are close to winter. You can see the design of the entire shoe. On the case, we have a right and a left shoe and both marks on the scene have been collected because it was a trail of marks in the snow and the design, its rarity in the population is known. Now, I will put this into the context of a burglary case. 
And this is based on data that among the data set of shoes collected from potential burglars, that typical general pattern and size is pretty rare. Roughly, and I say roughly uh, by intention, roughly 1 in 50 as the relative frequency for that type of shoe. Now, during the follow-up examination, the comparison showed that both the mark and the shoe has the same level of wear. The shoe is not very worn, and the snow is not allowing you to see a lot of cuts or bruises of very acquired characteristic of small sizes. However, there is stones which are trapped in the shoe, and there is little stones both on the right and the left shoe, and the snow is showing the marks corresponding to the positioning of these four stones, two on the right and two on the left. So the general pattern is already contributing to this discussion. Now comes the discussion about the little stones trapped under the shoe. And of course, I don't know of any statistical study which can help me here because I'm not aware of any study who systematically looked at how often you find stones trapped under shoe soles. And if you find one, I can bet it will never be the general pattern we are talking about in this case. So I will have to assign a probability based on my understanding and my idealistic modeling of how stones get stuck under the soil. And I will claim and assign in this case that the probability of finding two stones on one and two stones on the other is a pretty rare event. In my view, it's below one in a thousand. And that will be one of my assessments I will use in the case. In a statement prepared for court purposes, and we call, in our jargon, this an evaluative statement, uh, in a statement of that nature, we'll have to address two questions. The first is, what is the probability if truly that pair of shoes produce the two impressions left on the crime scene, that we will find the agreement in terms of general pattern and the positioning of the four stones uh, just in these positions as they have been observed? This is the first question. To answer that question, uh, I need to consider the time delay between when the marks were deposited and when the shoes were seized. And without that information, I cannot answer this because if I'm telling you that the shoes had been seized two years uh, down the road compared to the time of the findings on the crime scene, it will be quite strange still finding four little stones trapped exactly in the right position and nothing more and nothing less. So, I have to account for the reproducibility, given the time frame, of the features that I have seen on the mark. And here again, there is an assignment to make based on expert judgment and knowledge about how shoes evolve with time and how reproducible are features observed on crime scene marks when you step with a shoe on snow. And again, it will be hard to find any statistical study on that element, but Applying professional judgment, I think it's fair and important for an expert to be allowed to assign a probability to this. And I will say that I have very good expectation to observe what I had observed. And by very good expectation, I'm claiming that my probability is 0.9. This is the first part of the coin. The second point, part of the coin is when, when you don't know that if you assume it is not the shoe. It is a shoe from someone else, from a different pair of unknown shoes. Here, it means that alternative shoe would have, by chance, the same general pattern, the same size, and the same 
small little stones trapped under the outsource. And that probability will be informed by the data I discussed just previously. And I hope I can remember the numbers. But I think I said there is one in, one in 50 probability for the general pattern and one in 1,000. My assignment for the four stones to be trapped in these positions. And I will multiply both together because my assignment for the four stones has been already conditioned on the fact that I'm observing that type of general pattern and not a complete leak. Shoo. So the answer to the second question, the probability assignment, to make this observation if it is an unknown shoe, will be 1 over 30 multiplied by 1 over 1,000. So what is 1 over 30,000? Overall, the likelihood ratio, hence expressing the degree of support these observations bring to the proposition that the mark has been left by that shoe, because we are talking about the two marks, is 0.9 divided by 1 in 30. Which represents extremely strong evidence in favor of the view that both of the marks recovered from the crime scene had been left by that pair of shoes. It does not prove, in a sense, that it's an identification that the mark has been left by this pair. It does not allow us to say that it is very likely that it brings supporting information for that proposition, and that's how I will report this in my statement. I will report the number even though it is not based on a statistical study, but it is based in a combination between, for some elements, data I can dig out from casework data or submission to the laboratory or seizures from suspected individuals. And on the other hand, when it comes to the little stones, for example, it will stem from uh, my informed judgment, which I'm happy to apply in this case to assign this probability. I think that's the logical leap that people have some trouble with is if I don't have a number, then how do I say a number? And if I don't say a number, what am I saying? So I think that explanation really helps to make it clear how you might approach that. And it's funny, Heidi, how you say that people don't have a, a number, but when you discuss with, for example, handwriting examiners, they told us we don't have a number. But then you ask if that feature is rare or if it's common. And they will say, yeah, I think this one is rare. And then you ask them, well, is rare one in two? And they will say no. Is it one in 10? They would say no. So they have this thought experiment of thinking what they mean by rare. So I think the framework helps you think about uh, what you really mean by saying it is a rare feature, especially in our times where we have the internet. We could imagine asking the opinion of a lot of experts on those things. And so we could gather some knowledge there for characteristics that we may not be able to observe that we know are not very common. So I think it allows us to explicit or thinking. And I think that is hugely important to know what's happening in forensic scientists' mind. Having this process of being fully transparent allows them to discuss why there are some differences. Whereas if you have something such as a black box, then you cannot discuss why you have difference. I was just going to comment because there are some people who are looking at these problems who would object to what you're saying and who would want a more what we call pure frequentist interpretation of forensic evidence. There's certainly a view that is uh, the perfect forensic science is the one that eliminates the human altogether. And I think those folks also would say further 
that using a Bayesian approach in the way that you're talking about uh, is fraught with difficulty because I think they would say, well, it sounds like guesswork to me. Yes, John, it's an objection that we hear very often. And I think it is based on a very peculiar view of what is a scientific endeavor. Unfortunately, most forensic areas are highly dependent on the case circumstances. And when I say case circumstances, I'm talking about the circumstances associated with the transfer of evidence of interest. And they are highly dependent on timing, geography from time to time. And as soon as we ask people to think about the probabilities of making such or so observation given different set of propositions, it's an illusion to think that we will have at our disposal a perfect data number crunching device that will give you the probability of interest by calculation. It, is, it, it simply will not happen. What will happen is a constant use of structured data, of course, and we have to value this, this initiative as much as we can. But in the hands of people who still critically look at this and assess, does it apply to my case? Is it relevant to the, to the task at hand? Does it inform properly? And we have to be prepared to have experts to say, no, these data, I will not use them because they are not uh, to a point. They are reflecting a, a reality which is too far away from the circumstances in this case. And scientists should be given the power in all transparency, but should be given the possibility to adjust their judgment in the light of their knowledge. I think it's a dream situation that will never occur, and, and maybe I would be proved to be wrong. But in most of areas of forensic science, and, and fingerprints count as one of them as well, we will have exercised documented judgment by an expert, informed by data in a structured way when these data are available, but also informed by his uh, professional expertise about how using them and what does it mean in the context of the case? And at the end of the day, it's a matter of providing an opinion whose value has to be judged against the transparency that the expert developed and his argument that he has made, but it remains an argumentative process and not a statistical process. About the guesswork, I have my PhD in the field of glass interpretation. Obviously, I think that the number of glass fragments that you recover is an important factor to take into account. So it's an important observation that we need to give value. So if we have, for example, 20 fragments, or if we have only one fragment, for me, the value of evidence is different. How can we account for this difference? Well, if we use the Bayesian approach, then we can see that Transfer is an important factor, and that's going to have an impact on the number of fragments we expect to recover if indeed the person has, for example, broken the window. And transfer probability, they are very difficult to compute. If the expert has some knowledge about how it was transferred, for example, if we know that there was a stone recovered on the crime scene and we can infer it was broken by a stone, we would expect that we would have different transfer probabilities than we would if the burglar was seen with a hammer, for example. And we have seen that giving the, the different scenarios to different persons who work in glass and who had some knowledge, maybe through publications or to 
do a work of their own, we could see that the probabilities that were assigned for the same event, given the same circumstances, were uh, in the same order of magnitude. If you would ask someone who doesn't work in glass and you would ask what's the probability of finding a large group of fragments if the, the window was broken, he would guess. But I think forensic scientists who are involved in the discipline, they do not guess. They have some knowledge. And the experiment we had done at the time in the glass showed that the assessments were very similar. And if they are not, then you always have the possibility to ask questions and know why they are different. Whereas if you use another approach, you will not be able to take into account the number of fragments in a logical way. So till now, I think the Bayesian approach as a caseworker is one of the frameworks that allows us to assign all the different observations that we believe are important in logical and also transparent way. And I think transparency is very important. Well, Johnny, if I may, there is one topic which I, I think I'd like to discuss a bit further. If you look at the, the challenges facing forensic science interpretation uh, ahead of us, and certainly more in the US than elsewhere at times, an idealistic vision that we would have, both Tasha and I, is to have systems which will allow experts to compile their experience and challenge their experience altogether. An expert system will act as a repository of, of collective experience. And when you have a new case, you can ask the system, have you seen this before? And that system will be fueled not by casework data, it will be fueled by systematic uh, experiments that collectively, as a forensic community, have been added to the knowledge base. So when facing a situation which is new or in which you may have less knowledge or experience, instead of doing any guesswork, which of course we don't want, will allow people to position themselves in this uncertainty. And having this corpus of knowledge made available at a large scale, why not at an international scale, uh, will allow to develop a community which will be less fragile and less prone to attack because you can tap into a collective knowledge made available. And I think what Heidi and I are trying to do in the fingerprint area is very similar is to try to tease out what are the key principles that people apply in their current practice to construct their expertise, put this into some sort of a system which will describe or structure this information, and then make this information available to others, maybe more less experienced examiners which are just finding their way through the discipline to help them to make informed judgment. And it is not to substitute their judgment, but it's to provide supporting information so that they can, in a better way, in a quicker way, uh, reach their own conclusion. And, and when it comes to this subjective versus objective discussion, I always like to refer to Lindley, who said, and probably Tasha knows the quote better than me, that, uh, that objectivity is just reached by a subjective judgment which is shared among the multiple observers. So if we can move it in an area of forensic science where there is shared agreement as to the probabilities that need to be assigned to different problems, and there is commonality in this order of magnitude, then we reach objectivity. And I think it's a more holistic view than, than the view to think that it's just a matter of number crunching databases and big systems that will give you the true number, because there is no true number out there. There is just good informed judgment to reach. I agree with that. I mean, I think we tend to talk about standardization and objectivity as though they were the same thing. 
and as Christoph mentioned, objectivity is really going to have to be approximated. And the way you approximate that is through standardization, which is going to be sort of a consensus process, whether it's a consensus of opinions or a consensus of observations. For instance, the OSAC, who's making their consensus-based standards, well, that's everyone deciding how things should be. And that's one way of, of getting a decrease in variability. You can also look at it as what Christoph was describing, a consensus of knowledge or a consensus of observations. You know, many of us have seen this particular item to behave in this particular way. And once we get enough people who say, yeah, I, I agree that's how it behaves, then we can come to a standardization of, okay, we're all going to agree that's how it behaves. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's absolute truth, but it's something that we can all agree with and use operationally moving forward. So these are very complex issues, issues that even you all work on them every day. These are, I'm sure can be very challenging. And it's very, very difficult for the average forensic scientist to be able to engage on what can seem rather complex logic, complex uh, mathematics. So tell me, you all have uh, initiated some education programs along this line to try to help the forensic scientists become an expert in dealing with these issues of interpretation. Can you uh, share with us what you all have been doing in Europe in this area? It's true that since we were working at the Forensic Science Service and seeing all these caseworkers with these problems and, and also seeing how the framework was useful for us to solve these problems. And so with Ian, we had this project of having this online course where anybody in the world could learn about the Bayesian framework and see how it could help them in everyday work, making their knowledge more valuable. So when we came back with Christoph, we thought it would be a great idea to have this certificate of advanced studies with our friends and colleagues, Franco Taroni and Alex Biederman, on interpretation and having this practical course that could help practitioners. So it's really not a course with a lot of mathematics and statistical tests and everything. It's really more on reasoning and seeing how they can apply the knowledge that they have in order to give the value of their evidence, but not only looking at one side because we did, when we were doing our studies, we would always look at our evidence from one side instead of looking at what's the probability of the evidence uh, given what the defense says and given what the prosecution says, which seems more logical because we are not working for any of the parties and we, we should consider or findings given that leads to a hypothesis. So we built up this online course. It's a long course, it's 500 hours, and we have had very dedicated students taking the course and having very good feedback about how it helped them. So our courses, half of it is theory, uh, always applied to a case, and then you have to work on your own cases in order to be able to apply to your cases. And as you said, John, the problem with cases is that we don't always have data, and this allows them to know if they have enough knowledge in order to assess their findings, or if not the case, then they should not report their findings, and we as researchers should do more and more research on the topic. We also have some shorter courses. One is on DNA, also one is on general forensics, so uh, we have had document examiners, fibers, glass, even people who did not have uh, data at their disposal told us that the course 
had been very helpful for them in order to continue reporting casework. If I may just add on this, one of my experiences I took out of my time at the FSS is we used to train people over a week. So you had maybe two courses back-to-back -back for one week to deal with all of these issues and train them to be reporting officers. That was the time where the growth was so large that we had a huge intake of young scientists joining the FSS. Because of a commercial market at the time, it was very important that they could be on the reporting cases as quickly as possible. So we were fast-tracking them quickly through the program. And it developed what we call the brick wall effect. So after two weeks on face-to-face -face teaching, they were fine. They were delighted and they went home and say, oh, I'm happy I can handle this and I would be at ease in court. And then one month down the line, first case that they have to go to court was in and it was obvious that they were facing a brick wall because it's very difficult in these areas to be able to contextualize and apply what you have learned on a course to the practice. And the idea of us doing this online was to give people the time they need to think and contextualize the concept they see on the course one week directly in their practice the next week, then come back to us with new problems. And when the course is running over six months, for example, it gives the people the time to solidify knowledge, apply it to their cases, come back to the tutors with practical problems they have faced in the lab. And we wanted to avoid this brick wall effect where you get two weeks packed training go back to your laboratory, and it is just impossible to apply. So we are going to be trying to help the University of Lausanne bring that to the United States. And that's very, very exciting. Uh, Heidi, I don't know if you're familiar. Is there anything like that that is available to forensic scientists? I'm not sure there's a whole lot of education and training uh, here in the United States along that line. Yeah, I don't think there is in the sort of practical applied aspects of it. The FTCOE has hosted a couple of statistical courses over the last year that have been sort of a nice foundation in statistical concepts, but they haven't taken the step that, that Christoph and Tasha are describing, where there's a deep explanation followed by practical exercises and even working on your own cases to learn how to apply it. And I, I think that's the piece that's really vitally missing right now. You all have been doing that work for several years in Europe, is that right? Yes, the first course started in 2010, so it's been now seven years. It's true that uh, for us, the motivation of doing such course, I think um, it's both because we are forensic scientists and we have seen that this approach is very practical and very useful for us as forensic scientists. Also, it is for justice in general, even if this seems a, a bit idealistic, we would like uh, forensic scientists to give the value that everybody would agree with. And this framework allows us to be balanced, to be more also scientific. Tasha, you mentioned that you'd had some American students up until now. I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. because the European and American justice systems operate on a slightly different model, I mean, have you found that these principles have been well applicable to the American market? Are the American students, I guess, appreciative of them and feeling that they can incorporate them into their work in their home agency? Yes, I think they are applicable to any forensic scientist because they are not for the court. All this framework is only useful for us. We are all forensic scientists all over the world. We are using the same techniques, uh, and so wherever 
back, all the people we had from Canada or Brazil have never even mentioned this topic. I've known Christoph uh, for 14 years, and he's been working in the area of forensic statistics over that entire period. I'll tell you that we were able to, at NIJ, uh, move money to fund Christoph, and not just me, but other, other folks have followed up with that through uh, something called TISWIG, which is a federal agency that works in the international sphere to improve the state of research and technology, especially that related to combating terrorism. So uh, NIJ has funded Christoph both in his work in the UK and now that he's back in Lausanne. The result of that to some degree, although mostly a result of Christoph and Tasha's hard work, has been the fact that Lausanne has now built up a set of research and programs at the University of Lausanne that is at least the equal of any other in the entire world in this area. They have produced a number of PhD candidates, and I'm hoping Heidi will be another one of the PhDs that come out of the University of Lausanne, and have developed rigorous approaches that I think will benefit forensic science for generations to come. I think they're producing a foundation that's very, very important. One of the things that they do also is, of course, education and training programs, and we're hoping to bring some of those professional training programs into the United States as well. These are very important problems, but they're difficult problems. Most forensic scientists have not gotten training in these areas, so we hope that you got a taste for some of that work through these podcasts and of the importance of the University of Lausanne. So we've had a good conversation today, but we haven't really done any talk at all about what Lausanne is doing with respect to its research directions. Perhaps uh, while we've got you, you can give us a quick tour of what the University of Lausanne is doing on the research side of things. Of course, John. And it's quite unfortunate that we are only two here because the University of Lausanne is a very large forensic science program with more than two people involved. So in total, as far as forensic science, we have 88 PhD students as we speak doing projects related to forensic science. They are the real fuel of the institution and Heidi is one of them. It gives an opportunity to cover a lot of forensic areas and this generalist approach to forensic science thinking that we need to cover most forensic science areas from biology down to physics and uh, pattern-based examination documents and chemistry, and we try to cover every area of forensic science. So quite often you name an area, and we probably will have one or two PhD students doing some research. It will take quite a long podcast for us to go through all of these disciplines, but essentially uh, we have a, a large research program in chemical criminalistics in relation to drug analysis, to detection of metabolites in water, in wastewater, and so on. We have a large group dealing with microtraces and fibers and paint, soil evidence. I'm more in charge of the physical pattern type of evidence, ranging from firearms and, and, and bullets down to fingerprints, and that generally tends to be my area of expertise. And the new area is not well known in the U.S., and that's a real shame. In the U.S., forensic science is always viewed as producing evidence for court, but we have a lot of research looking at the investment way of, of using forensic science or forensic elements in crime analysis, in strategic decision by police. So we use forensic science as a tool to improve policing uh, and to provide police forces with, uh, with tactical information about what is going on out there. 
Well, uh, the whole idea of using uh, forensic intelligence is uh, something near and dear to my heart. We actually just published an article in uh, Police Chief Magazine here, the trade magazine of the police chiefs here in the United States, uh, along that line, talking about uh, some of the things going on in the United Kingdom, but also uh, here here in America in, along that line. I think it's uh, a rich area to improve the effectiveness of detectives to uh, be able to use uh, forensic information. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, this key contribution of forensic science to policing is generally completely ignored in, in all the documents dealing with forensic science from a critical perspective. So everything has been focused on the delivery of evidence in court. And of course, there is a lot to say, but at the cost of not looking at forensic science from a more global perspective. I hope you really have enjoyed this foray into numbers. As you can see, there's many, many different viewpoints and ways to look at these issues around statistical analysis. And we've discussed how logical thinking must be applied appropriately when determining subjective probability. It's been a real pleasure having Christophe Champaud and Tasha Hicks and Heidi Eldridge here to participate in this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about their work, please visit our website, 